Hi, everyone. Welcome again to Walking Together. I'm Crystal. And I'm Ashley. And today we're going to have a very special guest talking with us about the health of First Nations people, Charles Fox. He's a former Grand Chief of Anishinaabeaski Nation, as well as a former Ontario Regional Chief and a lifelong advocate for Indigenous rights in Canada. So today we're going to be talking to Charles primarily about four areas. We're going to be talking to him about what is health transformation for First Nations people? Why is the push for health transformation in the North so important to First Nations in Canada? What does health transformation look like in practice for First Nations in NAN? And how do you see health transformation contributing to improved health outcomes for First Nations people in NAN? Okay, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, thank you for those four questions. Charles Fox is my anglicized name. That's my colonized name. My spirit name is Pagune Yijik. My other uh, spirit name that was uh, given to me is Kakunagapowich. Uh, so Pagune Yijik was a uh, name given to me when I was the regional chief of Ontario by the elders of Grand Council Treaty Number 3. So Grand Council Treaty Number 3 are those First Nations around Kenora, uh, Dryden, and Fort Francis. There's about 27 First Nations there. Kakunagapo, which was a name given to me by my Guimes in Sandy Lake, and that's in the Anishinaabeaski Nation. That was a naming ceremony. And uh, it was a very, for me, the experience was humbling and very uh, educational because it was given to me when I was uh, the Grand Chief of Anishinaabeaski Nation. Guimes in the in the English uh, uh, language would be close to a godfather. So my godfather is from uh, Sandalikia since he is since deceased, but he was the one who gave me that name. When the uh, elders and leadership of uh, Grand Council Tree Number Three gave me the name uh, Pagune Gijik, they also ado adopted me into the Lynx clan. So Lynx is my dodem, and I'm from uh, Michigan Zagaigan which means uh, Michigan Lake. But the uh, postal address carries Bearskin Lake for uh, my home community. A bit of history to that is uh, the Hudson's Bay Post was uh, located in Bearskin Lake, just uh, a little bit to the east of Sachigo Lake. And so when the Hudson's Bay Post moved to Michigan Lake, where the band membership currently resides, the name came with it. So we were stuck with the name Burskin Lake. So when I look at the, uh, the uh, four questions, I, I, I have to think about the holistic picture of who we are as uh, First Nations people. When I say colonized, I, I, I mean that from the context of our natural beings as First Nations people. My first language is uh, in Inuit, and that's the language that I speak. That's the dialect that I speak. So that is my language. That's the first language given to me by my creator. 
Just a little bit of history with respect to myself. I'm a, I'm a survivor of the residential school system. I went to a residential school when I was eight years old. And I never got back to Michigan Zagayun until I was uh, 20 years old. The primary purpose of the residential school was to get rid of that Anishinaabe in uh, today's language, to get rid of the Indian. Of course, Indian is also a misnomer. Indian is a title given to me by Christopher Columbus in 1492 who was looking for India in his travels and mistakenly landed on our shores. So the purpose of the residential school was to get rid of my spirit and to make me into a non-native person, to beat it out of me, to drive it out of me, to destroy all the foundations of who I was as a human being. Now it meant I couldn't speak my language, any cultural intonations like having long hair. Immediately we got shaved. We were discouraged from any communication or access to our families. And we were told that uh, we were savages, that our way of life was ungodly and that we could not practice that, that we had to learn from this institution that was formulated in a partnership between the church and the government. So I'm a survivor of that. What uh, transpired in the 1970s was the formation of the Grand Council Treaty Number 9 in 1973 in Timmins. This was an advocacy body created primarily for the purpose of working for the Northern communities of Ontario, current day Anishinaabe Nation. And I was hired on in 1976 when I was 20 years old. And uh, it was a saving grace for me. It was truly uh, for me, something that I could latch onto to begin to ascend in the ranks of First Nations leadership. But before that happened, when I got home when I was 20, I was very fortunate to have my parents take me back to the land year after year. They deprogrammed me. They deprogrammed what happened to me in a residential school and they reprogrammed me. They gave me back my language. They taught me the language. They taught me our way of life. They taught me our culture. It was my father who showed me how to live off the land, how to hunt fish and trap, how to prepare fish, how to skin beavers and stretch beavers. It was he who taught me how to hunt and gut and dismember and prepare moose. It was my mother who taught me leadership. My father also te taught me how to clean the, our cabin, our tents, wherever we might be, take care of uh, our clothes, prepare meals, make tea, travel across our lands by foot, by skidoo, by boat and motor. My mom prepared all our meals, pre prepared all the hides, prepared all the game, prepared all the fish. And she's taught me the skills of leadership. I remember 
when she was the Northern Regional Chair for Arts and Crafts People. And uh, she took me to a provincial conference in uh, Toronto. I was about 22 years old at the time. And she had been talking to me in the last couple of years since I got home about her work, briefing me, telling me what she was doing, what the goals and objectives were of that organization. So when we got to Toronto, she started speaking and she was so articulate, so well-versed in her language. She gave her report. And when she was done, she said, I have here with me my son. He's going to translate everything I've just said. So that was my entry into the political system. I had to learn right on the spot how to speak to a group of three, four hundred people. Talk about being thrown into the fire. You kind of uh, stammer your way through and you keep looking at your mom saying, what did you say here? You know, but I made it through. And uh, soon, shortly thereafter, I was uh, doing work with the communities, with the Grand Council in different uh, forums and different uh, capacities. I went on to become a tribal chair of the Windigo First Nations Council. We formed a tribal council. First, it started off as a project development area in 1977. We formed our winter road system in 1978. I was president of the winter road system that, uh, that second winter, 79. And we went on to form the tribal council in the early 80s. I ran for deputy grand chief in 1988. I became Grand Chief of Anishinaabe Nation in 1994. I became Regional Chief of Ontario in 2000. And I stepped down in polit from politics in uh, 2005, 2006, after uh, serving in different capacities for a period of 30 years. But after that, I took on other responsibilities associated with promoting, advocating, defending, lobbying for First Nations, communities, membership, rights, responsibilities, a wide range of tasks that uh, I took on. My wife and I started a group home. We looked after uh, boys in crisis ages 8 to 12, and we've been doing that since 2012. There's numerous projects and numerous memberships that I've been involved in throughout my life. I can attest to working with the Lakehead University as its board member. I've been on the Clean Water Advisory uh, Board in, uh, in Toronto. I've uh, served as uh, a diplomat and as an ambassador to uh, First Nations issues on many fronts. So I've had a full and, uh, I suppose, productive life when I, when I look at it from that perspective. I have uh, nine children and 13 grandchildren. And I want to leave uh, this world a better world for them when I'm finished my work here on this uh, on this plane. So when I look at the uh, question of health for uh, First Nations people, I look at it from a holistic perspective. Now, the four questions that uh, you've asked of me to comment upon. We have to understand, as First Nations people, our history. And our history is uh, very complex. It's... Uh, I would urge our membership to look at it completely right from the day that uh, Christopher Columbus landed on our shores. But I know that there was even 
pre-contact by the Vikings and other explorers before that. As I said, the, the name Indian was uh, bestowed upon us by Christopher Columbus. But as natural people, for me, I am Anishinaabe or I am an Inuk. When you look at the different tribes and the different makings across the country, that, that's who they are. Like in uh, the Haudenosaunee to Southern Ontario, it's your Iroquoian Confederacy. They call themselves the Haudenosaunee. The Anishinaabe Confederation is all your Ojibwe people. That's a large confederacy. And the Inuk, where I am from, smaller. We uh, go to uh, northern Manitoba, basically northern Ontario. But you know, there's different uh, names that are attached to us. We're either the Algonquin or we're the, uh, we're the Woodland Cree or there's all these different connotations put to us by, uh, by Western civilization. From there, the relationship that we had, uh, I dare say, I, I, I do believe that we rescued a lot of those people who landed on our shores. A lot of them would have perished with the uh, winters and the diseases that attacked them. So as First Nations people, we were independent. We were on our own. We lived our own way of life. We had our own natural laws, natural ways of raising our children, natural democracies. We had our own natural social systems, economic systems. And so when the explorers landed, we, we saved a lot of them and we welcomed them onto our shores. As the relationship evolved and more settlers arrived, the relationship slowly changed. From being friends and allies in the first 100, 150, 200 years, you'd have to trace that history. It's, it's quite, uh, quite uh, educational. If you look at the War of 1812, there were alliances that were created between tribes the Red Coats, the British versus the American forces that were coming to take over Canada. And we repelled that uh, advance by the uh, Americans, kept Canada as an independent state. Those alliances that were created, whether it was wars between the French and the Hurons with the British and the Haudenosaunee, different tribes, there were friendships or alliances that were created in that history, warriors creating alliances. That's the, that's the, that was another relationship. First from rescuing the people who lie on our shores to alliances. And you know, the history as it developed, the laws that were created by these European people, they never shared those with us. Like the Royal Proclamation of 1763. You'd have to study that Royal Proclamation. But basically for us, the Royal Proclamation is where the European states recognized that there were Aboriginal people on these lands. And those people had title to those lands. So in order to wrest or steal those lands from those Aboriginal people, they instituted a mechanism called the treaty-making process. That's the way I view it personally, of course. Other historians will tell you otherwise. And the treaty-making process was set up for the purpose of taking lands away from First Nations people. But, but I digress. In order for you to understand the history of the European and how they viewed the rest of the world, when they sent out their explorers, they gave them the power of discovery called the Terra Nullis. The Terra Nullis Doctrine. The Terra Nullis Doctrine basically stated that those agents that were sent out, the explorers, to find and discover lands on behalf 
of their kings and queens, that they could do so with this doctrine. They could claim those lands in the name of their kings and queens if those lands were uninhabited or inhabited by non-civilized people, by savages. In other words, people who were deemed human beings. And that's where, that's where racism was born. That's the racism that we live with today. To this day, legislation such as the Indian Act, current day legislation that we still live under as First Nations people, does not recognize us as human beings. Right. It's still there. It's the law of the country. So going back to the uh, Royal Proclamation on the treaty-making process, that's where it came from. So for me, my grandfather signed the Adhesion Treaty Number no. 9 in 1929. But the treaty-making process started right after in 1763. Those are, are pre-Confederation treaties that were signed from 1763 to 1867 when Confederation came into being, when the provincial and federal powers were defined with this present-day Canada. At that time, it was Upper, upper Ontario, Lower Ontario, I think there was five different states that were in operation at that time in 1867. And that's where the division of powers was created, provincial powers versus federal powers. And the Indian Act was born as well. The responsibility of the Indian Act was Section 9124 of the Constitution. Indians and lands reserved for Indians. Power vested in the ministry to look after that particular piece of legislation. But when you look at racism, and I just want to look at that for, for a minute, that's where it came from. Terra Nullis, we were discovered because we weren't human beings, we were savages, reinforced in the Indian Act. When you look at the Indian Act carefully, it will say, you'll be surprised, we are still savages, we are not human beings, and as such, the government has to look after us. We are wards of the state. We are helpless. And that act still exists to this day. So when you look at the treaty-making process, there's two distinct interpretations and understandings of the treaty. You look at the written text. It says it's, you surrendered your lands. You look at the world, world history that's passed on to us from generations. Our leaders said that they were not giving up their title or their rights to the lands, that they were agreeing to a coexistence, peaceful coexistence with the settlers. And of course, the commissioners who came to the treaties were translators, were the missionaries. The translation of the text of the treaties were done by the missionaries. And therefore, they convinced the leadership at the, of the day to sign those treaties with excess, not even syllabics, excess. And to this day, all the treaties in Canada, pre-Confederation, post-Confederation, are viewed as valid treaties of land surrender. Of course, we say otherwise. The only province who didn't sign treaties was British Columbia. And to this day, the First Nations in British Columbia are claiming Aboriginal title to their lands. And that's the difference. And the courts agree with them. 
court after court decision has reinforced that. So when you look at the treaty-making process that started pre-Confederation to post-Confederation, our treaty, like I said, was signed in 1905 as the original treaty number nine, and the adhesion was in 1929. So when you look at that history, when the settlers first landed, we were rescuers, we were helpers, led up to partnerships and allies in the wars. Somewhere along the way, we lost that. We became subjugated and oppressed and suppressed. We became more, I suppose, when you look at it from the context of terra knowledge to present day, it was reinforced that we weren't human beings, that we were savages. So when you look at the 1492 contact of present day, that racism still exists very strongly. It's reinforced in legislation. When people talk about institutional racism. Yeah, it's very real. Constitution, it's in our legislation. It's in the policies. The first prime minister of this country was himself a racist who wanted to get rid of the quote-unquote Indian. And there were lots of provincial leaders, federal leaders who came after him, who espoused that same belief. And you still have the same to this day. So when you look at health from that perspective, from the holistic picture, as First Nations people, when you say health transformation, you got to take everything back that you lost based on that history. You got to take back what is rightfully yours. It's not just the health programs or the health services. It's not just your doctors and nurses and your community health representatives you have to transform the whole system and that's the big picture so how do you begin to do that for me as a person as an individual it has to start with our people our people have to understand their history they have to understand who they are as Indianuk, as Anishinaabe, as Haudenosaunee, as Haida as all the tribes across this country. They have to take back their identity, their history, their language, their culture, their traditions, their practices. They have to reestablish, reinforce all the foundations of their spirituality, their economic system, their social system, basis for their lands, their language. That's the biggest resources we have that's the biggest resource we have as, as a people in terms of transformation. It is our own people. We have to invest in our people. We have to look at the lands. For us, the tree and nine lands occupy two-thirds of Ontario's landmass. Those are our lands. It's the people of Anishinaabeesky, the Cree, the Meshkegawak, the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabe, the Woodland Cree, the Indianwak. Those are our lands. How do we begin to take them back? How do we begin to take back those lands that are rightfully ours? Our people, our lawyers, our leadership, our youth, our women. They have to begin to set up those processes of reestablishing their ownership of those lands in different ways. How does one go about doing that? You go out on the land. Wherever you are in Ontario, you build a cabin. That's yours. You claim title to that area. That's your land. Your son goes out, builds his own cabin. Your other son goes to another area. That's common law application of land 
ownership. You travel those rivers, lakes, overland. You make use of those lands. That's ownership. It's occupancy. Traditional practices of harvesting. First Nations people, we've been doing that for centuries. We have to keep that up. We have to assert our ownership. Will it create adversity? Of course it will. But you have to stand up. You have to stand up for what you believe in. So when you're looking at health transformation, you're looking at transformation of all that you know in your life as a First Nations person. An interesting development that's happening with respect to child welfare, children, is First Nations taking over, taking on ownership of child and family services from their existing provincial and federal laws. Very interesting. And that's the route that we have to go. I'm using that as an example. Bill C-92 was passed by the federal government in January of 2019. That particular piece of legislation empowers First Nations to develop their own family law, children's law for their community. It gives them jurisdiction over their children, the rights of their children. You develop that law, you can fashion it after provincial pieces of legislation. And you can create it in your own way to reflect, to adapt to your community standards, your community's beliefs, your community's culture, your community's practices. And once you've developed that law, what you do then is you go through a community referendum with your total membership. My particular situation, we have close to a thousand people. Some of them are off reserve, some of them are on reserve. That referendum would have to include all those people, both on reserve and off reserve. If the membership votes in favor of that law that's developed by that First Nation, then it officially becomes that First Nation's law and they notify both levels of government that their law has passed the due process and they're ready to negotiate with Canada and Ontario on that law. Once, once that notice is served, Canada and Ontario have one year to negotiate with that First Nation. After one year, whatever the content is of that law, it becomes official and it supersedes federal and provincial law. That same type of thinking, First Nations have to push for this, has to apply to all sectors of our life, whether it's economics, whether it's political, whether it's health, whether it's social, culture, language, we have to push that. The reclamation of natural laws is another step in terms of health transformation. So you talked a little bit, you just touched on the importance of, of outcomes for on-reserve and off-reserve populations. And I was wondering if you have any ideas in sort of how to, I know that's a, a sort of a, an ongoing issue is how to address the needs and the issues um, experienced by off-reserve populations. I'm wondering if you have any ideas on how we could be more inclusive for off-reserve populations. Well, you know, it's too bad that we've fallen into this categorization mm -hmm. of off-reserve, on-reserve, status, non-status. Right. And it's unfortunate because, again, that's all part of racism. Absolutely. That's part of the legislative policy racism that we live in 
or live under as First Nations people. It's unfortunate because government has developed those classifications. Government insists in order for you to receive the benefits of government assistance, program services, you have to live on reserve. Right. Once you leave the reserve, you become part of the provincial system. In order to reclaim that, that's part of what I'm talking about, the reclamation Mm -hmm. of First Nation system. That's part of transformation. Transformation has to look at the fact that as long as you're a First Nation member, it doesn't matter where you live. Right. You have the right to that service, the right to that assistance, the right to that program. If it's health, you have that right. And like I was saying, with that particular bill that's passed for children, First Nations now have jurisdiction of their children, no matter where that child lives. If the child is in Europe, in a different jurisdiction in the world, the child needs help, is in trouble in that country, that First Nation can reach out and in protocol, work out the details of how to help their child. If you look at it from that perspective in terms of health services, health programs, health, health assistance, the same thing can be applied. That means as First Nations people, we have to push, we have to pressure, we have to lobby, we have to make that a reality that we will have health-specific legislation for the Indigenous people in this country. That will take a lot of work, take a lot of lobbying, a lot of pressure, and uh, First Nations leadership, the Inuit and the Métis, have to have a concerted effort on that front. But it can be done. So when you're looking at transformation for any sector, resources, human resources, land, laws, reclamation of laws, I'm sure there's other categories, but that's the beginning. You can look at those. And you mentioned um, the importance of reconnecting to the land. Is that specific to health outcomes for Indigenous populations? And can you maybe elaborate a little bit on why reconnection to the land or how it's so important for the improvement of health outcomes for First Nations people? I know you, t- you talked about... Um, returning from residential school and your parents taking you out on the land and, and helping you to reconnect. So what about that process is so important for us as Indigenous people? When you look at uh, the historical context of land, we were placed in, uh, on Turtle Island by our creator to, uh, to live and uh, survive and thrive. And the different uh, peoples were placed in different continents. The land is a therapeutic tool. The land is therapy. I was fortunate enough to go back to the land after I came back from a residential school. My parents used the land as their tool to heal me and to reprogram me into the person that I should be, the natural person, the inini the Anishinaabe, not the residential broken boy that was half native and half non-native. They gave me back my language, they gave me back my land, my culture, they gave me back my practices, my traditions. You have to trust in yourself before you can trust in another. Those are the teachings of the land. So for us, 
when we see broken spirits, when we see our people crying on the streets, when we see our people struggling, our answer lies in that therapeutic tool that was given to us by our Creator. That's our culture, that's our tradition. That's who we are as Anishinaabe people, as Inuit, as Haudenosaunee, as First Nations. So when you look at uh, the whole question of transformation, that's what it encompasses. It's a holistic approach. I just want to reiterate that it's not just looking at programs and services of health. It's the whole being of who we are as a people. And how do we capture, recapture, re-instill, re-develop. That's part of the challenge we have as, as a people. But we have to take the big picture and the different sectors that we have to live with and put it all together. Make sense? Yeah, uh, definitely. Like, I hear what you're saying. You know, there's there's a very real distinction between the westernized sort of biomedical conception of health and how people perceive that um, compared to what you've been talking about with what well-being means to First Nations people. And so, you know, all these pieces, uh, what, what you're talking about, the reclamation of land and connection to land and other factors, spiritual connectedness as well among other things, those are things that we don't necessarily consider in the biomedical conception of health and well-being, right? So I think that's, that's like a really important piece to sort of remember in moving forward and like looking at, you know, understanding that, yeah, health transformation, I think as it translates for our people, does not necessarily mean the same thing that it does for the broader Canadian population. And so that's an interesting piece just to sort of reflect upon. Yeah, because when you look at the language, for one thing, for us, when you look at health, it's, um, it's, we, can, we can probably use which means medical, medicine help, medicine assistance. Okay. But for us, health is, again, is all encompassing. It's 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 uh, it, it, it encompasses like it's your whole well-being it's uh, your 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 whole system is is well you know right so what, what is the proper word for that what is the proper language that would capture that in English I, we'd have to work on that our linguists would have to work on that it's, it's totally foreign so when you're talking about health transformation for us it's 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 not just your medical. It's not your. It's not just your doctors and nurses and, uh, tackling your diabetes, tackling your different ailments and sicknesses, and that. It's uh, all encompassing in terms of your spiritual, spiritual, your mental, your emotional. Your so it, it's uh, beyond health. It's a broader connectedness, right? Yeah, the language that we use is is, is beyond. It's health plus. Mm-hmm. Well, our 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 uh, language experts will have to define that, have to come to a term with that. When you look at racism, people talk about institutionalized racism. Right. It, it's beyond that. Yes. It, it's beyond that. Like, yeah, institutionalized racism is, is one of the one of the one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, exactly. I suppose characteristics of racism. Right. But it's embedded. Yeah, it's, the very system we exist in operates upon the foundations of the racist doctrines that founded 
these the systems that exist. Exactly, exactly. And right. you know, the rest of society co has come to accept it as normal. Yeah. So when you say to them, no, it is not normal, they don't understand. It's, that's a normal way of life for them. And when you say to them, hey, you're being racist towards me, they say, no, no, we're not. <laughs> Yeah. For them, it's a normal way of life. That's right. Right, right from the, the day of discovery, it was a racist doctrine that founded this country. That's right. And that racism permeates everything in our society. And uh, it's so, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, you, 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 have to, you have to change the whole thing. I mean, there's, no, that's even, there's not even any recognition of uh, First Nations people and their role in... Uh, in uh, the history of, of the, the United States or Canada. Right. And, uh, you know, it, like I said, if it wasn't for us, a lot of these explorers would not have survived. We, we saved them from the first harsh winters that they encountered on these lands. And then we helped them in their fights and their battles. Otherwise they would have destroyed each other. Right. And there was never any recognition of that. We saved Canada. It would have been one massive United States of America if it wasn't for the allied relationship that was established between the First Nations of Canada with the Redcoats. So in order to correct that, Canada has to correct its history. So Charles, would you say on that note that an important piece to this health transformation could be Canada recognizing that relationship and formally acknowledging the contributions that First Nations people had in those early days? Well, you know, um, that's part of all the recommendations. If you look at the recommendations of royal commissions that have been established in this country, there are numerous recommendations to that effect. Royal Commission uh, that was established for, royal, for Aboriginal peoples, RCAP. Like, I don't know how many hundreds of recommendations are in there, and some of them allude to this, but no... The governments have never responded to those, never acted on those. They've ignored them. If there's going to be true reconciliation, you, you got to look at that. In order for a reconciliation between First Nations and society in this country to happen, you, you, have, you have to look at that seriously and, and do something about it. I don't know if there's going to be any courageous government that's ever going to start that. They've been doing, doing it in bits and pieces. But in terms of declaring that and looking at reconciliation from that perspective and tackling it, I haven't seen it yet, but it has to happen. Well, that was great. I mean, we've, we really learned a lot. I think coming into this conversation with you today, Charles, we were probably not expecting as much depth and consideration to go into so many other factors beyond this this sort of simplified conception of health and and sort of recognizing through talking with you that health for first nations people means something much more than medical well-being as you said than the improvement of disease and illness and that this that consideration needs to be given to well-being in this broader context as we move forward and hopefully make these transformations in our in our relationship with Canada with the crown and sort of the restoration of well-being for first nations people 
So thank you for sharing um, all of your experiences and your wise words with us. It's been an honor and a blessing to talk with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Charles, for taking the time to talk to us today. And I think everything that you shared is going to be really greatly appreciated by our listeners and, of course, by us as well for the way that you've broadened our perspective and, as Crystal said, shared so much of your personal experience with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.